Gary DePaul with Unleapable Leadership, Episode 13, Guy Wallace and the Clarity of Purpose. Guy is a person who does a lot of video recordings of people around the world, and he interviews them. Now it's time to turn the tables and have Guy as the guest. With that, let's get started. If you're trying to strengthen business results, if you're wanting to know how to better leverage your talent development department, your training department, learning and development department, or if you're trying to figure out why your departments are not getting along, talk to Guy Wallace. Guy is one of the leading experts in performance improvement and with systems instructional design, instructional systems design. There you go, ISD. Uh, he's the person to talk to. He's written books, lots of books, books that are huge about instructional design, performance analysis. In fact, look in the show notes. There's some links to some of his books. Check him out. He is a good person to talk with. He is also a steward and curator of the performance improvement profession. For example, he has recorded more than 135 videos of performance improvement practitioners, researchers, professors. In fact, there's a whole library that I'll provide a link to on from the HPT Treasures website, HPT being Human Performance Technology. I consider Guy to be a friend and someone who looks out for me. He'll check in with me every so often see how I'm doing, make sure I'm, I'm doing fine, healthy, and I'll check in on him as well. One thing you should know about Guy is because of his the number of clients he's had, the people he knows in the field, he has a lot of stories and a lot of good stories to tell, and you're about to hear some of them. Part 1, The Revelation at the Fantail Watch. If you're going to work in management, one of the things you have to do, you need to do, is convey purpose and explain the importance of what it is that other people are doing, what you're doing, and what the company is doing as a whole. That applies to people working in firms, public companies, private companies, and the military. Like a number of my guests, Guy served in the armed forces, in particular the Navy. What you're about to hear is something that happened early in Guy's service. Here he is now. Well, back in October of 1973, I was told, I just want you to be clear about your mission. So the backstory to that is that it was mid-morning, and I had just spent the past two days flying from Kansas City, Missouri, to San Francisco, California, to Anchorage, Alaska, to Tokyo, Japan, to the Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And then I'd taken a long, long, long bus ride to Subic Bay where I boarded my ship, the USS Okinawa at 0200. So two o'clock in the morning for you landlubbers. <laughs> uh, where a yeoman from the ship's personnel office had to be woken up from his watch so he could find me a rack so I could catch some Z's, as we used to say back in the day. And then after less than three hours of sleep, because I had to get up for a ship's muster and uh, then spend a few minutes in the personnel office getting checked in, I'd come back from A school, 
I was in my working compartment as the ship got underway and we pulled away from Subic Bay and out to sea. Uh, a knock came on my workspace's locked door and when I opened it, it was the XO, the executive officer, who poked his head in and looked at the five of us standing there and asked, which one of you is Wallace? I okay. said, sir, I am, sir. And he barked, follow me. <laughs> and so I raced down the passageway trying to catch up to him and followed him to a set of ladders that we took downstairs to the hangar deck and across that to the ship's fantail, where he told the fantail watch, beat it go take a smoke break. Now, I had stood the fantail watch before, and I knew that the consequences for abandoning that post could be quite severe. Real quick, what is the fantail watch? So the fantail is the back end, the stern of the ship, and there's this big opening window, if you will, um, and the fantail watch is there to watch for man overboard. Now, I was in the Navy in the mid-70s, and so, you know, there weren't women on the ship at, those, at that time, so it was man overboard. And, you know, this is the last person who has an opportunity, a chance to see that somebody has fallen overboard or heard them screaming and yelling in the water or observed it happening or whatever. So it's, you know, it's a critical watch to be stood. And, you know, you just you just can't be what they call skylarking, uh, you know, stargazing, looking around. You got to be, you've got to be ever vigilant, watching for that man overboard. You're literally watching. Yeah. You do not take your eyes off the ocean for your two-hour watch, and actually, it's a four-hour watch. But but uh, somebody would come by and relieve you, so you could take a rest break or whatever. Uh, on occasion, only if you'd arrange that with a friend and they'd stand in for you. But so so you know, we're steaming away from Subic Bay, and uh, we're on a helicopter carrier. And, you know, those kinds of accidents would occur during flight operations. This wasn't going on at the time, but, you know, you could be blown over the side of the ship because of the rotor, the cause of the rotors and, you know, or, you know, a helicopter landing and got too close to you. <laughs> you backed away and, you know, fell over the side, missed the uh, cable netting on the side. But I, it had been impressed on me before I went away to school that uh, when you stood that watch, you just had to, you know, be ever vigilant and you, you, you wouldn't have to you wouldn't want to have to explain at the captain's mast, you know, why you didn't hear or see anything, especially in broad daylight, uh, you know, after the man overboard exercise was conducted because, you know, uh, the ship would turn around, you'd go back for them, they'd launch boats, helicopters, everything to go, you know, find somebody who'd fallen overboard. And all the time, you know, that over the uh, 1MC, the uh, intercom system, uh, the communication system on the ship would be saying, you know, this is not a drill. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. You know, we, we all took that kind of seriously because, you know, that could be us falling over the side of the ship. So I'm, I'm being taken to the fantail watch area with the executive officer, the number two in command of the ship, just, you know, after the captain. And he tells the the watch to beat it and go take a smoke break. And, uh, you know, I felt bad for the guy because I knew that you, you know, he was hesitant in, in leaving and the executive officer again kind of gave him a stern look. And so he, he left, he, he went around the corner and I could see his shoes because he wasn't going to leave, go too far from his watch post. This all heightened the, uh, the intensity. For, yeah. For me, I was, you know, what, you know, what the heck? And I'm thinking, you know, what the heck did I do? 
I've just been here, you know, a few hours, you know, what could I have done to be in trouble here? Why is he taking me to, you know, anyway, so I'm, I'm standing there uh, at attention and he says, you know, at ease. And so I kind of, you know, assumed a more relaxed posture and, you know, he was looking out over the water. He wasn't looking at me. He's looking out of the water, and I'm thinking he's doing the fantail watch's job. Well, I guess that's cool, you know. Um, but anyway, so he says he, he says to me while he's looking away from me, he says, I just want you to be clear about your mission. Okay. Sir, yes, sir, was my reply, you know, and I'm standing there at ease. And he says, your mission is to keep the Marines from killing Marines, the Marines from killing sailors, and the sailors from killing sailors. And then I volunteered, you know, and the sailors from killing Marines. And he turned to me and he barked, sailors don't kill Marines. <laughs> so I immediately went back to at attention, knowing that I had just screwed up, you know, to put it in civilian terms. Mm -hmm. uh, and he got out a cigarette pack, took one out, tapped it, lit it, and blew smoke in my face. It was all rather oh. dramatic. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, what the heck's going on here? What, you know, but I knew, you know, because of his barking at me, uh, you know, that uh, I had screwed up. And he said, you know, there have been murders on this ship's past three Westpacs. And a Westpac is a Western Pacific cruise. It's when you leave the States and you head off to the Western Pacific and mm. South China Seas, blah, blah, blah. And he said, and the captain is damn sick and tired of writing parents, congressmen, and senators and his own chain of command about, you know, how could this happen on a U.S. naval warship? Sir, yes, sir, I replied, still at attention. So literally, this was true. This was something that actually happened and went, went out to sea that someone might kill someone. Yes, there's, there's all sorts of reasons for it, um, but murders had happened on the three prior cruises. And, you know, so, the, you know, so the executive officer, he's in charge of ship's morale. Mm. And I, you know, I didn't really appreciate it, but I was working for him, you know, five layers of chain of command between his role and my role on the ship. But uh, so, you know, so he, so he asked me, so what kind of programming do you have? Well, you know, I just got back from my A school at DINFOS, the Department, the, the, uh, the Department of Defense Information School, uh, where I graduated in both print and broadcast journalism. And my job was to go back and run the CCTV, closed circuit television system on board the ship, which is there to entertain everybody. So this is 1973 when I'm catching up back to my ship from school. And this is a new installation. They just put it in. They operated it while I, in my absence, till I caught up with the ship in the Philippines. And, mm. and, but so, so I hadn't really had a chance to check out all my programming, but we had covered that kind of stuff in my schooling. So I said, you know, oh yeah, I've got, you know, I've got masterpiece theater and I've got college football games. And he stopped me. He held up his hand. He says, you're up in Marine country where my closed circuit television studio was at up in Marine country. Ah. What do Marines read? And my mind started racing. Ah, you know, I can't say the wrong thing here because I've already, you know, screwed up, you know, full paw. But, and, and you know, this, this is not a drill. The band's asking me, you know, so what kind of program? Oh, you know, so what do Marines read? I, 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 
took me, you know, it felt like minutes and minutes and minutes, but it was probably 10, 15 seconds. And, and I said, oh, sir, comic books, sir. Ah, of course. And he nods his head and he says, okay, again, what kind of programming do you have? So then we talked about, you know, the kinds of things that I had and, you know, what, what I, he told me, I don't ever want to see a college football game on my television system. Everybody knows what the score was. These games are nine months to 18 months old. All the officers are going to come and ask you to show the games of their alma maters because they're going to talk to other officers in the fleet and they're going to know that that game is circulating. I don't ever want to see it mm. on my system. And I, sir, yes, sir. And uh, anyway, so, so because he was charged with ship's morale, I and the closed circuit television system were his tools to address morale issues, to keep people occupied after knocking off of work, going down and getting your chow, and then you go someplace on the ship and, you know, spend your free time and try to stay out of trouble and try to stay out of fights and things like that. If it wasn't football and if it wasn't Masterpiece, then what kind of programming did you have options for? Well, I, we had all the family. And when I said that, he says that, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had a couple other programs. And I don't remember all the details of that, but uh, I had cartoons and I had, you know, silly kind of programming, black and white films, older films and some newer programming. Uh, but that television show, All the Family, you know, that was, that was a huge shift. And uh, so, you know, that was my job. My job was to help keep ship's morale up and entertain the troops. 600 sailors, 2,400 Marines, you know, a little city and my captive audience. Yeah. What kind of effect did that have, that type of programming have? How, you, know, well, you know, how did it result? You know, I did a five-minute newscast every day at 1800 six o'clock again for you land lovers um or non-military types did a five minute newscast read the news i'd go up to radio central and grab the they'd have they'd get the collect the news for me and i'd read you know the api stuff and all the other uh news sources that they collected and so i would pick stories and read five minutes worth of news no more no less and then boom right into programming and we didn't stop for commercials. I had a whole bunch of commercials that the U.S. Navy had provided to me, but people would whine and crab at me when I showed those, so I quit showing them. I just <laughs> ran it straight on, and we'd run from you know six o'clock at night uh, till one or two in the morning and show the programming and keep people you know occupied, busy. Taking my programming to the next ship or bringing programming to my ship was not a priority. U.S. mail was a priority. My programming was not. You did what you had to do to, to entertain everybody. And then I get requests for re-showing something because somebody stood a four-hour watch and they missed a particular program and they heard all about it and they wanted to see it again. So <laughs> I'd show it for them and then I'd take the abuse from everybody else because everybody knew my face because I did that five minutes of newscast every night. And you know, so I couldn't go anywhere without you know hearing good or bad feedback from, you know, my captive audience. Yep. Your, your programming and the role you had may not have had a, a high priority compared to the U.S. Postal Service delivering mail to the crew. When I hear the comment, are you clear on your mission? 
for me, that's a way of calibrating or recalibrating your crucial role that you bring to your ship. In the heat of the moment, you, there's a tendency just to react. But when you revisit your guiding principles, your purpose, that enables us to respond more thoughtfully rather than just simply react. That's what I get from being clear about your mission, that statement. Oh, yes. And, and me being clear about my mission got me in big trouble one time. The officers have a mess, which is their little, you know, eating area and dining room area. And the chiefs have their mess. And the chiefs, for some reason, didn't like me. Okay. So they sent me a note one night and said, from the chief's mess and signed by my chief in the chain of command, that I was to shut down all the television programming at 10 o'clock at night. So oh, that'll uh, go over well. Oh, oh, I'm staring at this note and I've got friends. I have an air conditioned space in the South China Sea where it's hot and humid. So my friends would congregate in my workspace and you know, I let them run it. They knew how to run the thing. But I took this note that I had gotten from the chief mess because it had been delivered by the, you know, somebody. I can't remember. I broke five uh, levels of chain of command when I walked down to the executive officer's compartment, knocked on his door, and handed him this note. And he read it, and he said, oh, I'll take care of this, but you're in a world of trouble. <laughs> and, uh, and... So the next day I had to go talk to my, the, the petty officer in charge of my group. I then talked to the chief. I talked to the division officer. I talked to the department head. And then I talked to the executive officer who said, wasn't that fun? Uh, and because I had said, you know, this is contrary to the mission I had been given because I'm pretty darn sure, sir, which is what I said to everybody that wasn't a petty officer. And as I had to go the rounds the next day, I'm pretty sure all those murders happened after 10 o'clock at night. You know, that may have been true, but still, you know, you just don't go break the chain of command. And what I should have done is shut the system down and then gone from there. But, you know, I was too into this is my job. I'm keeping people entertained and, you know, they shouldn't do this. And so I got in trouble. But, the but you were but you them. were clear about your I, mission. I was, and and everybody else was not. <laughs> it was between the executive officer and myself. And if only he had clued everybody else in, then I would have probably been. Okay. I still been, wouldn't yeah. have been okay because I still broke, you know, the chain of command, and that's a no-no. So I understand that. Part two: boundaries of inclusiveness. If you're relatively new to corporate life, you're most likely familiar with the term diversity and inclusion. Now, a lot of companies are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a crucial addition. If you want inclusiveness, you need boundaries. And that's exactly what Guy provided with his firm. And what's amazing, he did this well before the popularity of DE&I. Again, here's Guy. I've been an ISD, Instructional System Design Consultant, since 1982. And I became an equity partner in the first firm that I I joined, and I was in charge of the staff. I'd learned the value of being crystal clear about, you know, the mission, the charge, the assignment, the project, you know, whatever. And and so sometimes I tend to be a little bit dramatic about this. But but when I became this equity partner uh, back in the 1980s, 
you know, I began to tell our existing employees and all the new hire candidates that there were three ways to get immediately fired at our firm. Okay. And, you know, I, I, I'd seen enough issues that bothered the heck out of me in civilian jobs in the Navy, in college jobs on campus. You know, I just, I'd seen it and, you know, here I was in a position of authority and, you know, so I was going to stop that. But, and, and I'd learned a thing or two <laughs> or 3,000 from <laughs> this guy named Gary Rumler, the late Gary Rumler now, but he was very much alive then. And uh, so I, I became a practitioner of his kind of approach to things. But one of the things I learned from him, and when I worked at Motorola, I got a chance to work with him. He was a consultant working on a bunch of my projects, which meant I carried his pencils around as we went from place to place. But uh, <laughs> one of the things I learned about him is that, you know, to, to, if it's not the process, if there's a problem, we don't solve it with training. We go and look and say, is there a process? You know, are people adhering to it? If not, why not? Blah, blah, blah. And if it's not the process itself, it's usually the culture. Mm. And the, by the culture, I think he meant, and I'm putting words in his mouth and I shouldn't probably do that, but it, but it was the consequence system. So, you know, those are the things that are in control of management, uh, whether they're deliberately, in, in, you know, uh, establishing a consequence system or not, or inadvertently, but there is one. And so, and, and I also learned similar things from, you know, the writings of uh, W. Edwards Deming, the quality guru, um, yeah. that, you know, problems are really part of a system and management has that control, not individual performers or teams. Uh, and I'd also learned that from the executive officer on my ship as well. So, but when I started hiring candidates, you know, I'd start off with some, you know, chit chat, how are you doing? You know, what, what's your background, blah, blah, blah. And then I would say to them and try to be quite dramatic about it. You know, there's three ways to get fired here immediately. That'd catch them off guard a little bit. And so they'd have to pay particular attention to, you know, where, where am I coming from with this? And I'd say one, engage in any sexual harassment of our staff, subcontractors, or clients. Yeah. And then I'd give a little pause and, you know, I'd say that, you know, I was brought up by a single mother and she'd experienced this kind of, you know, harassment and that, you know, I had zero tolerance for it. And then I, you know, do a pregnant pause and let that sink in. And then... I'd say, okay, two is to engage in any racist behaviors with our staff, subcontractors, or clients. You know, and then I'd say, you know, hey, I'm a child of the 60s, and that's just how I am, and I have less than zero tolerance for any of that nonsense. And then another pregnant pause so that could sink in. And yep. so I could see on the people's faces, you know, whether, you know, they, they kind of liked hearing that or whether they <laughs> maybe had some concerns with that. And I'd say, and third, you know, cheating any of our clients or the firm, you know, that's a grounds for immediate dismissal too. That's, those are the three ways to get immediately fired. And, you know, the cheating our clients could happen because you fudge, you know, the numbers on your timesheet, you know, and we use that to invoice our clients. So if you're fudging those numbers, we're, we are cheating our clients and I, had, I, you know, can't tolerate that stuff. So then there'd be another, you know, pregnant pause after all that. So I'd let that sink in. Then, then I'd ask him if there were any questions. You know, and then I might even wrap it up by saying, you know, if the office manager isn't here when I terminate you or that she terminates you, you know, I will go find the checkbook and write your last check. Of course, that wasn't necessary, but I was just being, you know, overly dramatic. 
Now, what you were doing was reminds me of the first part where you're, in a sense, you're setting the parameter of the mission, in a way, getting their buy-in before they even consider joining the firm. And it gives them an opportunity that if they don't, if their values, it seems like these are, in a sense, the firm's values. If these values don't align with theirs, then they can look elsewhere and probably appreciate having to live someone else's values that aren't true to them. Yes, the phrase we used was seek happiness elsewhere. Seek happiness <laughs> elsewhere. I love it. But uh, yeah, so I, you know, when we get together, we had a, a common area for lunches and, and breaks and things like that. And I'd have uh, staff members who would tell me after they'd been there for a while, they'd say, oh, that was, that was a scary time, guy. I don't, you know, you really scared the heck out of me. And I appreciated you saying that. And then, you know, it's a, it, then it's a situation of, you know, will he walk the talk or is this just all talk? Because, you know, actions speak louder than words. And so... I wanted my employees to feel safe and I wanted it to be crystal clear that, you know, there were parameters here on behaviors. Now I can't control how you think I can't control your attitudes, but I can darn sure control your behaviors in my place of employment. You know, I'm the equity owner or the sole owner. This is just how it is, you know, and I'm a child of the sixties and that's the way it is. And if you don't like this, you know, you, maybe you don't want to take this job or if you take this job, you know, and you violate any of this stuff, you'll suffer the consequences because I'm not giving one or two strikes. I'm not. Um, the first instance of, of any of those three here, you are gone and that's it. And you know, it happened. And that just didn't happen because I fired anybody, but my office manager felt that she was empowered. And if, you know, she probably had to think about, well, if guy hears about this and I didn't fire this person here, then I'm going to have to face him. So I'm just going to let this person go right now. And boom, it's done and over with. You know, I wanted other people to feel secure. And, uh, you know, I was trying to go for a diverse workplace. And, you know, I wanted my staff to look like my customers and, you know, all those, you know, things. I just, I just had to be crystal clear about this. You know, it, it wasn't me giving them their mission. It's giving them the parameters of behavior and where the lines are and make sure those lines are painted in such a bright color that it's clear when you're getting close to them. Part three, clarify with declarations. Communication is something we all can work on. It's something I think I'll be working on all my life. Every so often I'll hear about or read about a particular technique and be able to just improve just a little bit. What Guy explains is a very cool technique. Check it out. Something that's important to me is to be declarative and even to be declarative about being declarative. And let me explain that. So I, I don't want to have people, uh, I don't want to force people to read my mind, figure out where I'm coming from, you know, what's his intention. I, I, you know, if it's important, it behooves me, the sender of communications, to be crystal clear and to make sure that everybody else understands you know, what I'm trying to communicate. Um, and so I think it's important to work overtime for making sure that 
you are clear with people and that they understand that the message sent is the message received. Part of this is being declarative. So one of the things I learned from Neil Rackham of Huthwaite of Spin Selling Fame back in 1981 before the book even came out, but Spin was out there. He had a set of communications behaviors that were part of spin selling back in the day. I'm not sure that they're as visible today as they were back then. But it was also part of his uh, win-win negotiations training that Hathaway had. And that was part of my job at Motorola was to bring in the win-win negotiations thing. So I learned all this stuff and was certified by Neil to be an observer in the training sessions, blah, blah, blah. So I extracted from the 11 communications behaviors of spin selling and the 13 communications behaviors of win-win negotiation for key behaviors. It was easier for me to remember these, but they are giving information, seeking information, summarizing, and testing understanding. One of the things that I learned from both Neil and, and John Carlisle, who was part of that organization at that time, um, and was the master of their negotiations training, was that one should preface their communications with what they're going to do. So announce it, you know, so let me give some information here and then give the information, or let me ask a question here before you seek information, or let me try and summarize and then summarize something. And then the same thing for, you know, let me test my understanding here to see if I've got this right. And then do the testing of your understanding to see if you've got it right. And that by declaring your intent before you employed a new communications behavior, before you switch from one to another, that prepared the listener for what was coming next. So they wouldn't be caught up in what was just going on here is if you're going to, you know, switch, you know, your, what you're doing from giving information to seeking information, you need to declare that that's what you're going to do. And that helps them go, Oh, okay. And then they're ready for that and can participate in the communications appropriately. I really could have used that a few years ago. I was mm. interacting with the VP and I went into his office and I'll call him Walter and just started complaining about some guy. And after about, I don't know, two or three minutes, he looks at me and says, hey, wait a minute. Why are you complaining to me? This is not my problem. Are you complaining to me because you want me to do something or you just want me to listen? And I said, oh, I, no, I don't want you to do anything. I just, just listen. And he said, oh, and physically <laughs> relax and said, okay, now I know where we're going. Go ahead, proceed to complain and, and dump it. Yeah, get it off your chest. That's an excellent example of what I'm talking about. Is so that, you know, because otherwise people don't know. They're wondering, you know, well, where's the ask coming in from? You know, what, what, am I gonna, what am I supposed to do here? Well, either just listen or because I'm giving you information or get ready to answer my question, which means, you know, do. So it's a kind of a active listening to me has always been about, you know, the, the testing, understanding, the summarizing kind of behaviors as part of that two-way exchange. And so I, I just think that that's, it's, it's important. It's important to be, you know, clear about what it is you're doing when you're communicating to somebody so that it helps them. My thanks to Guy for his time, his service, and his curation. To learn more about Guy, go to the show notes. You'll find links to him, his books, some other stuff. If you have a question or comment, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and you can leave a voice message for up to one minute. Thank you for your support and for listening. 
Lead on. 